Well, Mike said that God is a God of stories, and before I read my passage, I want to tell a story from the Old Testament in brief uh, to tie it together, because it seems to me likely, uh, perhaps not certain, but likely that Paul had this exact account in mind when he said the words to the church in Corinth that we'll hear of in a minute. It's from the book of Genesis, and uh, Sarah, the mother of Isaac, had just died in the very preceding chapter. And God had promised that he would raise up a vast people out of uh, their child, Abraham, or excuse me, Isaac, but he had no wife. So Abraham calls his servant to him. They don't name the servant, which is important in the, in the passage, uh, but we're, I think, reasonably sure that it was probably his chief servant, Eleazar. And he said, Eleazar, I commission you to go back to my homeland, to my people, and to find a bride for my son. And they enter into a covenant. And um, the servant takes uh, camel after camel loaded with the treasures of the father of all who believe, this perfect um, and imperfect portrait of our father in heaven on his way to find a bride for the promised son of course, in Isaac. And he makes his way um, to a town where there's a well. And he waits and he prays that God would lead the right woman to him. And as he's waiting there in the sun with his camels, certainly creating quite a scene, a young woman, a beautiful woman named Rebecca, does exactly what he prayed would happen. She offers to water his camels, and he knows. And uh, you should read the story. It's in Genesis chapter 24. There's this um, really wonderful scene where they're kind of doing weird stuff about can she leave and can she not leave, and does she want to go and does she want to not go? Does any of this sound familiar to married people? I don't know. So um, that, was, that was mean. But uh, it certainly did to me and Sandy. And uh, finally, he takes her and leads her back safely home and leads her back as uh, they make the trek home. She's got her riches and her ornamentation that he's given her. And uh, she sees from afar Isaac in the field. And she says to the servant, who is that man? And he says what all good servants should say. He says, he is my master. She gets off her camel and covers her face, and we're told that she approaches Isaac and he, her, and they meet for the first time. And then the very next thing that we read is that Isaac takes her into Sarah's tent. And of course, what's happening is their union is being consummated, and um, the servant's gone. So take a look at um, that story in the context of the ministry. The, the father of the promised son calls a servant to find a bride, give her the riches of the household, and guard her and keep her safe until she's in the arms of her Savior. And I believe, um, as I said It's at least likely that Paul, who, of course, would have known that story and all the others, may have had that in mind when 
he wrote this word to a troubled church. So let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you for your mercies and I ask you please to um, teach us. Bless the reading and the preaching and the hearing and the doing and mostly the living and the loving of your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. It's a short passage this morning, shorter than the story. For I feel a divine jealousy for you, Paul says, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Amen. You know, the fact of the matter is, pretty much no one knows uh, what ministers do for a living. It's just not really understood, even honestly by ministers. And um, it's not understood as well as church folks think they understand it. But really, what, when you really find out how misunderstood stood your job and role is when you tell people out in the actual world what you do for a living. I met a woman in a coffee shop about 15 years ago, and, uh, and she found out that I'm a minister, which is not something you really volunteer. We can go into that later. But uh, so we had a good talk. We ended up doing their wedding. Sandy and I did their wedding and their premarital counseling. They, they never came to faith, but they were a sweet couple. And uh, the very next day after I met her, Sandy was in the coffee shop with me, and I I said, you should meet my wife. So I introduced them and, and I said, babe, to Sandy, not her. I said, I'm going to go get coffee and I'm going to get us some coffee. And the woman looked right at Sandy and said, wow, you are really attractive for a pastor's wife. <laughs> so Sandy and I have been in an argument for like 15 or 18 years about which one of us was being insulted and like, she just said that Sandy was attractive. So Sandy wasn't being insulted. It was me. She, she probably meant that pastor's wife. So, um, but we've just seen in this great story what, what you're being called to and the journey that you're also on now, Michelle. And uh, it's sacred and beautiful. The father calls you to find a bride for his son. To guard her heart until she's in his arms, and then to get out of the way. That's what we do. Let's look at that just a little bit for a few moments before we um, are part of you beginning that journey in ordained ministry. Well, first of all, Paul is swept up in God's jealousy and his love and his devotion. I am jealous for you with a divine jealousy. What he's saying is that he's, um, as it were, drafting or, or swept up in the vortex of the love that God has for his son's bride. Really, that God has for his son. Remember, if you remember at all, the New Testament, Jesus is always speaking or often speaking of those the Father has given him, right? He's not going to lose any of them. He's shown them the glory of the Father. And it's this, it's this love that God had for Jesus that he would create and call and redeem a bride for him. This becomes the, the sweep and the power and the momentum and the love and the jealousy that the minister has for the church. This is to be caught in the middle of the love of the Father and the Son. This is my Son, God said, whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. And I have called a bride for him. And John says, 
recording the prayer of Jesus in John 17, that Jesus said, Father, I've shown your glory to all these people you gave me. So the church and the Father and the Son are swept up in the momentum of God's jealous, burning, passionate love. And the minister and his family and his wife, even by proximity, but we know also by heart, um, will share in that jealousy. They'll be infected by it, if you will. It will become part of who they are. That's why Paul's jealousy is godly and divine. This is what Isaiah says. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen all day and all the night. They have never been silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it the praise of the ends of the earth. What you should know about ministers is that ministers love Jesus on their good days, but they also love the church. They have a jealousy, a passion, a zeal for her, for her thriving and prosperity, for her godliness and virtue, and for her comforts. It's hard to love the church. It is hard to love the church, isn't it? I told a woman once uh, in a kitchen, we were at some friend's house, she said, what do you do? And I said, I'm a minister. And she looked right at me and she goes, oh, I have nothing to do with institutional religion. I can't stand institutional religion. I think institutional religion is destructive and I want nothing to do with it. I was like, oh, would you pass a muffin? I mean, what do you say to that person? <laughs> like, like, let's just pretend it's not the most important part of my life, but it's also my job. Can you like cut me some slack for like the first five minutes we meet before you trash my entire life's vision. And yes, it hurt. As you can tell, it still hurts. But no one knows how hurtful the church can be, perhaps as much or often as a minister does. But still, this jealousy, this vortex, this jet stream of the love of God for the Father to find her a bride, find him a bride, um, sweeps up the minister and his family, into the story that Mike was talking about, praying about a moment ago. And we find it inescapable. We can't, we can't escape um, that current. And we don't really want to, but we will, and we do sometimes want to, sometimes desperately want to, but it, it has us, and we have a divine um, jealousy for you. Here's the reality of ministry God and reality of life, really, God embeds his passions in the people around you because God um, does not often or um, usually or commonly work independent of those secondary means, those people and places that he has for you. So we're trusting that God has put his jealousy for you into the heart of your ministers and your elders and their families. And that's just the way it is. And I'm sorry, you don't get to deal with God on your own totally. That's just not the way it works. I don't get to do that. He's going to send people like us to you and others. Of course, men and women, ministers and lay people. And what does Paul do then? Paul does something that's rather bold in the zeal of his jealousy. Um, he actually promises the church in Corinth to Christ. Now think about... Think about that for just a moment. 
um, and start to think about the complexities of ministry and the relationship that you have with your ministers and, their, um, and your elders and others, right? Uh, weren't they supposed to betroth themselves to Jesus? Isn't that how we do it in the West, right? I'm, I'm supposed to say, yes, I'll marry you, Jesus, right? But Paul says that he has betrothed Corinth to Jesus. Now, what does that mean? That means that the minister is placed so intimately in the course of the redemption and sanctification and safety and comfort of the people of God that, that he considers his commitment to you uh, in a fashion, a reflection, a necessary consequence of your commitment to Christ. And so he makes a promise for you. And here's what happens. And here's where it gets awkward. And this is when relationships get strained. Um, when you forget that promise you made to Christ, uh, your minister's job is not to forget that promise that you made to Christ. When, when you are distracted by other hopes and dreams and loves and passions, the minister's job is to not be distracted. To remember that he promised you. He comes to surround you with the remembrance of your covenant and your commitment. And so he promises you how? By, by preaching, by shepherding, by discipling, um, largely by just showing up and being part of your life. But this is where it gets complicated for the minister. As we've seen, the minister loves the church, and so here he is. See how close he is to the bride, right? He's betrothed the bride. Because he's really speaking, we can say, for the father, okay? He's betrothed the bride, and he's right there with her in her trials and her struggles and her victories. He reminds and exhorts and encourages her. He protects her and celebrates her and serves her, and he falls in love with her. But she's not for him. She's for another. And so in this betrothal, the minister in the complexities of his heart, will, will always be the best man, which is a misnomer, right? Because if you were the best man, what would be happening on that day? You'd be marrying the girl. You're always second best, the minister. By, by the act of this betrothal to another person, the minister always places himself second best. So with this promise, we've seen that he's swept up in the zeal that God has and the love for his son and the bride, that he's so closely associated with that matrix of relationships that he speaks for the father and promises the bride to the son and serves the son, and he's in the middle of it, inexorably placed in the middle of the consummation of your relationship with Jesus Christ. As Paul says to Timothy, remarkably, Paul tells Timothy, a young minister, watch your life and doctrine closely, for by it, or by that, you will save who? Both yourself and your hearers. So closely united is the work of your ministers with the salvation of your souls and the betrothal and the consummation of your marriage. So what is the minister to do? Place so intimately in the relationship, what is the minister to do? Well, we saw it. He's in we saw it in the servant in Abraham, and we see it in Paul's whole life in the book of Acts and all of his letters. He goes and finds the bride. He goes and finds the bride. And he woos her with the treasures of the gospel. 
That's what Eleazar probably did. It was probably him. He loaded up camels with the riches of the, maybe one of the richest men in all the world at the time, with treasures of incense and, um, and gold and silver. And he brings them. And so that's what your ministers do. They will you with the riches of the gospel, with every spiritual blessing in heaven, right? Um, they tell you to forget not the benefits of God. They remind you that when you're a bruised reed, he won't break you. And when you're a smoldering flick, he won't snuff you out. And his mercies, we tell you, are new every morning. And his faithfulness is never ending. And he embraces you with the sweet love of God who will lead you beside quiet waters. And when your sin increases... We bring the riches of the news that the grace of God will increase all the more. If you wander to another lover, he will go find you. And when he finds you, he will put you back on his shoulder and he will celebrate that he has found you again. And this is what we do. We woo you with the promises and the riches and the wonder of our Father in heaven. But we also guard you. And one of the most remarkable statements Maybe in the New Testament, Paul tells the church in Corinth that he has promised to present them as a pure virgin to Christ. Now think about this. If you don't know, if you don't know the church of Corinth, then just let me tell you briefly that that was going to take quite a bit of work to get the church of Corinth uh, presented to Christ as a pure virgin. We could say the same thing about Green Lake. We could say the same thing about Christ Church Bellingham or this church plant or John or Mike or Nate or you. If that's the power and the hope of the gospel. But it's also the work of the minister because the minister's job isn't simply to promise but to encourage and to exhort and to rebuke. These letters that Paul writes this in Paul has to address them with regard to worship, to spiritual experience and spiritual formation, sexual purity, drunkenness, factions, heterodoxy. That's just a partial list. The church is a mess. It's the minister's job. It's the minister's job to enter into the church's life and the individuals in the church's life and to call them to purity. What he says to Timothy in another place is, uh, preach the word, reprove, rebuke, exhort, who woke up this morning just hoping that they would come to church and, and Nate would rebuke them? Raise your hand if that's your favorite part of Sunday. No. Or reproving even. I'll take an exhortation every once in a while because that can be kind of encouraging. But that's what they do. John, your job, your job is to remind people of what they once said is true. To um, ask them why they're not acting like it is. To point them back to it. To expose um, the things that distract them. and The things that they worship instead of God. And they'll want to say, well, I, I, don't, I don't feel that anymore, and I don't believe that anymore, You've got it wrong, and, and your job is to say, I believe what you said before, not what you say now. I will always treat you. I will always treat you as if what you said that day when you came to this church 
you always mean. I can never unhear that. That's an email you hit sent on, and you can't have it back. And for the church that you pastor and the church that you're here for the next um, few couple of years with, that's his job. So I exhort you, let him do that in your life. Let your pastors, elders do that. Let one another do that in your life. You will decide that it's too hard. God's too slow. Something else is better. You will work the wonder of your miraculous rationalizations and everything will seem fine. So when one of your pastors or one of your elders or even one of your friends comes and says, you made a promise that I can't unhear, then you remember that God sent you ministers to find you and bring you back into the arms of your Savior. Well, you have to get out of the way. You know, I hate to admit this, but I became a minister because I sat in a church of about 500 people. One of the reasons, and I heard a man named Rodney Stortz preach, and I sat and I watched him for about a year, and about halfway through, I sat in the pew and said to myself, wow, how do you get that job? Now, there might have been some good in that, but there was sure a lot of not good in that. So I went to seminary, became super smart, and um, knew a lot of stuff. Went about the work of uh, going to find a bride, telling her about the promises of God, keeping her on the straight and narrow. That's what a minister's supposed to do. It's really hard to get out of the way, though. Even when you're pointing to Christ, it's hard to get out of the way. You know, you have to lead them. You men have to lead them to the Christ and to his embrace. You have to say, he's my master. I know you believe that, right? It's harder to live it in your heart than to confess it in your vows. But you have to do that. You have to get out of the way. He has to become greater, and, and you have to become like John the Baptist, right? You have to become lesser. And you have to watch these people. Your job, your job, my job, all of our ministers' jobs and elders is to watch people fall in love with Christ and forget about us. It takes a lifetime of work. But that's your job. That's the job you're about to take. You know, Michelle, that's the job you're going to live with him. You'll be swept into that too. I hope someone told you that already. You know, Sandy became a Christian about a year before we met. And so it was similar. And I was in seminary. Um, it's a life. It's a way of living. One more story about what I used to hear actually quite a bit in Seattle when people found out I was a minister. They would say, um, oh, you're a minister. And then they'd immediately say, oh, I'm sorry if I cussed. That happened a lot. But <laughs> um, 
And then they would look at me surprisingly frequently and say, so is, um, is that a full-time job? <laughs> well, it's a full-time job in two ways. One, it takes a lot of time to load up the camels with the promises of God and search Whatcom County to find the bride, then to guard her and bring her home. And it's also a full-time job. This is the harder part of it. It's also a full-time job to get out of the way. I trust by God's grace, um, you'll be good at both of those. And Nate and I will get better at them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your mercies. Your kindness is beyond our understanding. We sing of it, celebrate it, and yet we do not even begin to understand the scope of the greatness, of the glory, of the wonder, of the majesty, of the sweet kindness of God. In Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.